your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Fourth and a half yard at the six of Colorado. Now it's going to be an empty set. Snap back. Adrian's going to run off the right side. He's in there for a first down. He's in there for a touchdown. Nebraska takes the lead back here at Folsom Field. Now let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Josh Hilkeman. Thank you so much. Appreciate you dialing us up here tonight. We are we are appreciative of that. Hope we can keep you entertained over the next couple of hours here of Sports Nightly. Later on this hour, we're going to continue on our position breakdowns. We're going to dive into the offensive line. Greg Austin, Husker offensive line coach and run game coordinator, going to be with us. And a lot of names to go through. He has a big room in two senses. He has a lot of people in that room. They're all big guys. Josh, are big human beings in that room. No little boys in that room. No, I wonder what the combined weight of that room is if you added it all together. My goodness, that's, that's oh. a lot. Of, a lot of size there. Probably close to seven thousand pounds. I hope they're. I hope the floor joints are good under that that part of the <laughs> football complex. So we're going to get into that a little bit later on in the hour. We have another commitment to talk about. Husker football's on a bit of a roll. We had Nate Klaus from Husker Online last night, and he thought there might be some more. Coming, I don't know if he thought maybe today, but Malik Williams, another defensive back from the south, from Buford, Georgia, commits to the Cornhuskers. Three stars, according to rivals, and some momentum for Travis Fisher in that room after the announcement over the weekend from Marcus Buford and now land Malik Williams. What do you think of this commitment for the Big Red? Yeah, like you said, it's another guy in that defensive backfield. Like we talked about last night, after the Huskers, you know, lost two guys that were in this previous 2020 class uh, from the defensive backs position. So it's it's a needed position and another. It looks like another solid get for the Huskers. His final five were Florida, Louisville, Texas, Arizona State, and then he chose Nebraska, and. It, it, it goes back to what we talked about last night or what you talked about last night with Nate Klaus from Husker Online and the fact how the Huskers and the coaching staff are doing a, a great job recruiting during a really tough time to recruit. They they have this is the 14th commitment in the class and I last last year at this time they were what like 8 or 9. So right. That's, I mean, they're ahead of schedule and they're doing it under pretty difficult circumstances, basically only able to do virtual visits. And that's, I feel like that's pretty hard to get guys to pull a trigger, but they're able to do it. So uh, you got to hand it to this coaching staff. But again, it looks like this is a, a solid commit for the Huskers and at a position of need as well in that defensive backfield. It's uh, second guy in about a four-day stretch to commit to Nebraska. And if the Buford, Georgia sounds familiar, it should. He's the second young man from that town, Gabe Irvin, and running back committed to Nebraska back in late June. And so these guys are teammates. So you've got to think that's going to help. They're coming together from Buford, Georgia. Uh, Sean Becton, that's an area that he certainly works really hard down there as well. Now, that's the 14th commitment to the class. The last three have been DBs. Malik Williams today, Marcus Buford over the weekend, and Ladarius Webb from Jackson, Mississippi, committed right after the 4th of July. So a class up until about 10 days ago didn't have any DBs, now has three. Uh, And with that, we talked with Nate Klaus about this last night. Where does this put Nebraska on the national page? The 13th commitment, they were 31st ranked team rankings with the addition of Williams today. 
Nebraska jumped six more spots up to number 25 in the team ranking. So just by getting one more additional body into the recruiting class, Nebraska jumped five other teams and moves up to number 25 now in the national rankings with the 14th commitment. So Malik Williams, uh, the latest addition to the Cornhusker room. And, yep, it's kind of been a bit of a revolving door with Henry Gray leaving the program a few months ago. Certainly excited about him. I think there was a family situation there that caused that. And then Jaden Francois put his name in the transfer portal over the weekend as well. So that room that thought they had two young DBs now gone, they needed to kind of restock that. And Williams certainly adds to that along with Marcus Buford and Ladarius Webb. Speaking of stockpiling, we've not talked a lot about volleyball recruiting, Josh, on this program. Uh, But in people that are into that world may already know this a lot of Husker fans may not Sam McEwen has a terrific piece up on Omaha.com out of the Omaha World Herald about John Cook who's lining up a class Josh that could have when they sign in November the number one two and three players in the country coming to Husker volleyball I don't know that I've ever heard anything like this yeah, the number one, number two, number three, and then it goes beyond that. Number 10, number 16, and then number oh. 70 recruits in the country. So five of the top 16 players in all of this class of high school volleyball uh, looks like will be signed by Coach Cook and the Huskers. And what's what's really cool about it is that three of the six signees are from the state of Nebraska. The number two overall is Kraus, uh, Lindsey Kraus from up at Omaha Scut. And then you have two other ones as well with Whitney Lowenstein at 16 and then uh, Riley Gray, number 70 overall in the country. So I, you, you throw all of that out there and it's a lot of numbers and you kind of think, well, I mean, it's just recruiting like, but no, the, it, as Sam laid out and laid out in the story, it's it's unprecedented across all of sports to have this good of a recruiting class. And he compared it with both some you know all time great volleyball recruiting classes, but then he went and looked at it compared to some great basketball ones as well, the Michigan's Fab Five and the 2009 Kentucky team on the men's volleyball side. So. It's really, really impressive. And I think what's, you know, I talked about the in-state recruits and three of the six that looks like will be signed by the Huskers uh, for this upcoming class are going to be from Nebraska. The number one overall player in the class and kind of the feature of this story is Kennedy Orr. So she's the number one overall player in the country and she's a setter. And the Huskers sign her, but and they do so, they basically say no to two in-state recruits that are setters and two top 50 players in the nation. So two top 50 players in the nation from the state of Nebraska that the Huskers are basically saying, you know what, you're, you're really good, but we, we have the best player in the country at that position and best player in the country overall. So it's, it's really impressive. And uh, yeah, if you haven't read it yet, go, go look at it. It gets you really excited for Husker volleyball. It's, it's basically what coach cook is doing is, is building a dynasty. If he hasn't already done that. And, you know, there's a little bit of disappointment with the, the Huskers not having a national championship the past couple of years, but they're still getting to final fours and they're still getting really close. And I think that with this incoming class uh, next year, it'll be, you know, that, that'll be a big influx of talent right there. Oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable to watch that. The Fab Five is a great comparison because the way Michigan cleaned up and that 
that got them to a national championship game. We always rem- always remember Chris Weber trying to call a timeout that he did not have that may have cost Michigan a championship against North Carolina in that title game. But setters for folks, they're like quarterbacks. You don't usually take more than one in a class because you yep. only play. Now, I know that some people go with a two-setter system. That's not been a big thought process for John Cook. That's not something he likes to play. He likes to go with a traditional one-setter setup. Yep. You, you don't take multiple setters. It's like you don't take multiple quarterbacks in classes because there's only one of them that usually is on the court at a time. And so you just you don't want to waste somebody going, oh, you're not going to play, you're going to be unhappy. And I don't want an unhappy player on my team. So you're gonna, you have to back away once you get a commitment from a setter and or is the best of the best for that class. And think about this, and we don't know when Husker volleyball is going to happen. I have a hunch. I have a hunch Husker volleyball is not going to happen until the second semester this year. That nothing is official. I'm just trying to read some tea leaves. I think volleyball is going to be pushed back to the second semester. But whenever that team takes a court, remember, they didn't lose any seniors. They had no seniors off the last <laughs> year's, the, the, the 2019 team. So whenever this yeah. team, this edition of John Cook's volleyball team, takes a court, they're all back from last year's team. And then he's going to add this group in November that's just going to be killer. Unbelievable what he yeah. does. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. And it's it's you got to give coach cook and his staff so much credit because not only do they recruit really well and they have had great recruiting classes in the past nothing as good as this but they take that talent and they develop it and so i think that's what's really encouraging is that if they can bring all of this talent together and and form some chemistry between all these players i think that you're going to have a team to watch out for. And what's cool about it too, is that you have so many great players within the same class. So you would think that there would be some great chemistry there for years to come, not just when they get here, but for the two, three, four years after that, when they're all playing together, it's just, it's, it's really fun to watch. And yeah, no matter when the Huskers take the court, they're going to be fun to watch this year. And then next year, when the, when the, uh, when this class gets in, that'll be, there's going to be a lot of buzz around that team. I think. Josh, is also this story that Sam puts up. It also points to the strength of the volleyball systems in the state of Nebraska. It's really yep. good. There's really good talent year in and year out. We Obviously, we had the twins from Papillion. You had Hunter from, from Papillion. That's been a real help for Husker Volleyball, that the prep scene is so good in that sport yep. in this state. And, and it's just great that Coach Cook's able to do some of those. And those, those other setters you talked about from the state, Probably going to go to like a Creighton. It's also got a very good volleyball program. Yeah, one of them is going to USC, and there's one going to Creighton, and then there's another great in-state recruit that's going to Arizona State. So all really good high-level programs, and you don't like to lose them, but you only have so many spots on the roster, and you got to give credit going all the way back to Terry Pettit and then what John Cook has developed in making volleyball a sport in this state that young girls growing up want to play and want to be really good at and developing you know everything around that so i yeah there's there's a lot of different aspects to this story but that's that's a pretty cool one too is how great it volleyball is in this state at at the high school level kudos to the the high school coaches the the club coaches in this state they do a tremendous job and yeah you're not going to get those kind of caliber players to walk on to your program that it just isn't going to happen or nor should you expect that to happen when they no. get a full ride some somewhere else. So there's a quick update on Husker Volleyball. Uh, hoping to hear more about the status of their season here in the next week or two. Again, my gut kind of says the NCAA is going to push that sport back to the spring, hoping by then you have a, a vaccination for the coronavirus and things calm down a little bit. We'll see, though. 
tonight on Sports Nightly. It's the Husker football position breakdowns. Adrian gets the snap, puts it in the belly of Wandale around on the side. He's got a first down, 35-30. Wandale, 25-20, 15-10-5. He is in. Touchdown, Nebraska. Tonight, offensive line coach Greg Austin. With the Huskers, Greg Austin, you've, you've got to be excited about this group, Coach. I mean, you've got some some guys who've played an awful lot of football at the Big Ten level. This this has to have your juices flowing a little bit. Yeah, looking forward to um, the season with these guys, man. We are a, uh, a veteran group. You know, we have a lot of guys with a lot of snaps. And then the guys that didn't have as many snaps uh, last year got the snaps necessary to kind of get a feel for uh, the job uh, that they that basically the job requirements, you know. So, um, kind of really looking forward to you know this season and you know getting these guys out there and letting those guys coach themselves, if you will, right? I mean, when you get these guys that are senior leaders, you know they do a great job of not only playing but then also making the adjustments uh, on their own based on all the snaps that they've had. Uh, and, and you know, I don't want people to think and coach them on their own, but uh, but they but they do a good job of making in-game adjustments better than some of the guys that are younger. Well, we certainly saw great progress from your group as last season unfolded. Let's start with your two most veteran guys, and Brendan Hymas and Matt Farniak. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Matt moving to guard, uh, hopefully for this fall for the next football season. Your thoughts about those two, and how much more is left in those guys as we get ready to watch them play for the seniors? Oh man, um, sky's the limit to both. Uh, I mean, uh, Brendan has the opportunity to be one of the best in the conference and one of the best in the country at his position at uh, left tackle. So really looking forward to him uh, and really seeing him grow and mature into the player uh, that, that, you know, we recruited him to be, or they recruited him to be. He was recruited to, to come here to be. Um, uh, last year, man, we, we took, we saw that guy take his game, you know, to another level. Uh, especially playing some elite pass rushers, and, um, and and he did a great job, uh, especially at the end of the season uh, against uh, Iowa's premier pass rusher. So looking forward to watching him go out there and compete. And he's taking on an additional leadership role as well. I've just I've been kind of pressing this thing on him the last couple years, and you know he's kind of taking the ownership of it. So really looking forward to watching him not only compete, but then also watching him lead this group um, like he like he's been leading them the last, you know, for the better part of seven, eight months. Uh, Matt has been cross-training at both guard and tackle. Uh, and the big reason why he's been cross-training is because of, you know, uh, us getting shut down with spring ball and all the things that's been going on with the coronavirus. Uh, but, yeah, our plan is to play him more inside. We think that his uh, abilities are more tailored uh, to, pay, to play inside. Uh, so we're excited about uh, what he's going to be, you know, really kind of the dual responsibility that he's taken uh, in his role. So uh, looking forward to watching him go out there and compete his tail off. I mean, he's a natural competitor 
in his own self. He's one of the most competitive guys that uh, that I've ever come to know. Uh, so I'm excited, you know, about seeing what uh, not only what he does on the field, but again, he's been our leader. He's one of the team captains last year, and he'll continue on that role this year. Let's talk about a couple more of the gray beards in your room. Bo Wilson's put an awful lot of football for you and for the Cornhuskers. And then you get Christian Gaylord back for a sixth season after just an awful year for him, both personally and, and in the foot on the football team as well. Your thoughts about having those two guys back? Um, yeah, Bo, another guy with a lot of snaps under his belt. Um, Bo had some issues last year staying healthy. So really looking forward to seeing a healthy bowl this year, uh, a healthy guy that's going to go out there and compete. Um, he's one of the most competitive guys that I know as well. Um, tough guy, tough kid. And uh, so uh, we're going to do a good job, and I told this to Bo already, um, that, man, we're going to take care of you. And when I say take care of you, you know, you're not playing every single snap, kind of like what, what he did last year. You know, we've been fortunate to get a, a few guys behind him uh, that have some reps, and we have a lot of confidence in where he's going to be in more of a rotation. So we're uh, excited to get him, you know, get the real healthy him. You know, um, in 2018, uh, Bo played at a high level. And uh, and one of the going back and looking at that film, uh, we attributed his – for his his uh, uh, his production as a player to him being healthy. Uh, so now in 2019, he was not a healthy player. I mean, literally from week two on, he had nagging this, nagging that. So we're we're going to make sure we're taking care of him and getting the best out of him as well. Uh, Christian Gaylord, yeah, he's been he's he's a senior, six year senior that has gone through uh, some tough life challenges. You know, obviously with the passing of his father. And then, you know, on the field with him uh, tearing up his knee, uh, really fortunate to have him back uh, as a, another senior leader, seasoned guy uh, that's going to compete his tail off um, for, complaint, for, for, for some playing time at tackle, uh, particularly right tackle. So um, he's going to, you know, he's in the fold and he's working his tail off day in, day out uh, to, yeah, to see the field. So, and that's, uh, that's our, our goal is for him to uh, see the field and, you know, uh, be a productive player in doing so. Again, we're visiting with Husker offensive line coach and run game coordinator Greg Austin here on Sports Island as we can, or do our position breakdowns of the offensive line. Some of the guys that, that we saw quite a bit of last year, Trent Hickson started a, a bunch of games for you a year ago, and Brock Bando uh, made his presence felt as the season moved on. Your thoughts about Trent and Brock? Yeah, both of those guys competing inside as well. Uh, one of the things that I really love about this offensive line unit right now is the amount of guys that we have competing at these spots for playing time. You know, um, and you didn't mention Matt Chickamay, he's another guy yep. uh, that's in the, in the fold of the competition as well inside. You know, so between Brock, between Trent, you know, I know both of those guys have got some – substantial playing time as you know as Matt didn't but um, you know both of those guys were you know are uh, productive players and you know and, and you know we know competition breeds success and you know they're going to battle it out over the course of you know the summer session and long, along in the fall camp uh, to see 
you know, who's the next best guy, you know, uh, between Trent and Brock. We, we feel very uh, confident in those players and what they're going to be this year for us. We feel confident in their preparation and uh, what they're going to do to produce for this offensive line. Uh, different than when we initially arrived here, where guys, you know, we kind of had the haves and the have-nots, you know, and there was maybe only five guys that had playing time, playing experience, um, and they could do the job, you know. Whereas now, you know, you look up and there's about 10 guys that we feel confident in uh, this year um, that we feel like, you know, can go out there and, come and, do, and do the job for us. Let's talk about the center. What a big transition last year was for Cameron Jurgens to, to move positions and become a center. He had growing pains, but it certainly looked like he made a lot of progress by the end of the year. Your thoughts about Mr. Jurgens? Yeah, Cam, explosive kid, smart, cerebral. Um, I think last year what people saw was a guy that grew in his confidence not only within himself, but then also feeling the confidence of the guys from around him, from the right and to the left of him. And I think that, um, you know, that's kind of a, you know, a, a testament to uh, the guys, you know, really embracing him in his position switch and in, in his starting role and understanding that, guess, hey, this guy's a young guy and he's going to need some reps to get, you know, get into that position and really own the position. And they helped him in his pursuit doing in doing so, and he's kind of taken off from there, you know. Um, in that position, I like to call it a command presence. And what you saw from the South Alabama game, the Colorado game, was a guy that was wet behind the ears, man. He was just trying to figure it out, you know, and that was the reason really why the snaps were going everywhere, you know, and, you know, there were calls that weren't made that he needed to make, you know. So he was still learning a position on the run. And then by the time midseason rolled around, you know, things kind of slowed down for him. So uh, I'm excited to see, you know, uh, what he's going to do here for us this year. He's already taken more of a leadership role. You can see that the guys embrace him. You can see that, you know, the guys listen, you know, to him and what he's saying, whether he's, you know, just talking on the field or he's talking in leisure. You can tell that there's a command presence there. He has an aura about him. So uh, I'm excited about Cam. I'm excited about the maturity that he's taken. And um, I think he has a, a very bright future at that position. Coach, let's stay with that center spot. What's that depth chart look at the center position? Well, right behind Cam and close behind, close behind him is, is Will Forniak. You know, um, and, and Will has been a guy that's been working his tail off since he's been here. Obviously, he's the youngest, younger brother of Matt Forniak, the youngest of four boys. And, you know, he's been competing his ass off and, you know, I'm excited about Will this year as well. I'm excited about, you know, see where, you know, where where he ends up. You know, certainly, you know, that, that position at the center position, you know, we talk a lot about Cam and, and you know, uh, we expect him to potentially be the day one starter, but, you know, we're not just going to give it to you. You know, um, you're going to have to earn it. Uh, and Will uh, is 
you know, really clicking at his heels um, to to be that next guy. Uh, and then behind there, I think we've been doing some unique things with our depth chart. We've been getting more guys in that uh, in that role as the center. I know AJ AJ Forbes, you know, left along with Josh Wagner. Those guys were playing center for us, but Trent Hicks has been has been taking snaps. Um, Matt Sichterman has been taking snaps as well. So we're doing some things at that position to build some depth, to build some quality depth uh, that we feel like um, we'll have some confidence in should one of those two guys at the top go down. Again, we're visiting with Greg Austin, Husker offensive line coach and run game coordinator as we break down the Husker offensive line. I'm going to go to the redshirt freshman class next, Coach, and that was a big emphasis two years ago in your recruiting trails where you signed five. I think you've added a six in there with Brant Banks, maybe coming over from defensive line where you weren't sure if he was going to be an offense or defensive lineman. But let's get into the, the, the Banks, the Benharts, the Fritchies, the Lynn, the Andersons, and the Pipers. Those guys I know, you, you light up when you start talking about that young group. Yeah, those guys, again, you know, these guys are redshirt freshmen. You know, they have four years of eligibility. And, you know, we, uh, we're continuing to uh, uh, to, to progress those guys, and, and, uh, and, and you know, Brent is a guy that's going to compete at the left tackle spot, and uh, certainly, you know, he's learning from a guy that, uh, in my opinion, should be one of the better, better tackles, if not the best tackle in the country. You know, so uh, him being behind Brendan is an awesome deal. Uh, so. But he's progressing, and uh, he's doing what he needs to do in the weight room. His body is developing. You know, this thing, it's about development. You know, this this position, and more importantly, this league is about is a development league. You know, so you got to be able to develop guys, and all five of those, all six of those guys are guys that are currently developing in their roles. Um, you know, uh, even Piper is a guy that's competing uh, – I'm doing it. He's, uh, he's, he's competing inside as well at, the, at, the, at one of the guard spots, Ethan is. Um, and he's doing a, a dang good job of it. Um, uh, along with um, Michael Lynn, another guy that's competing at a guard spot inside, doing a good job. Uh, Bryce Denhart is competing at a tackle spot, and he's competing for playing time in a starting role. Um, Jimmy Fritchie uh, is competing for a backup role right now at tackle, you know, uh, and Matt Anderson as well. He's competing for a backup role at tackle. So, you know, all those guys are are, are, are in the development stage, whether they're, you know, more – some of them are more in a position to play, uh, where some of them, uh, when these seniors graduate out, it's, it's next man up and they're going to be in these roles. Um, vying for playing time here in the in the very near future. You know, you you were so heavy offensive line in that 2019 class that you only went with two in the 2020 class. That's not to say there aren't good players because Turner Corcoran, a lot of people feel like, might be the star of that 2020 class. Talk about those two true freshmen and Corcoran and Khan. Yeah, those guys have come in. And Turner Corcoran actually came in as a mid-year, so he was able to get two spring ball practices under his belt. And, yeah, He's a pretty talented kid with a bright future. So uh, we're excited about, you know, uh, Turner um, and his, 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 both of those guys, their maturity, him and Alex, those guys, 
just their maturity is just off the charts, you know. Um, and I haven't been around either one very much um, in terms of spatially uh, to really, you know, decide whether how they're going how early they're going to play. But nevertheless, we recruited two mature kids that I know are going to come in compete. And um, sky's the limit for both. And you know, and seeing Turner in those two practices that we saw him. You know, uh, his his future is extremely bright. Um, the guys have already taken well to him, just being around him. Um, he's a guy that's going to be first in the, first in the breakfast line in the morning, and <laughs> he's going to be asking you, you know, what what else can I do to get better? Um, and, and Alex, the guy that recently just arrived, um, and and you know, he's been doing a great job of working his tail off and uh, learning the playbook. You know, uh, and that's the one thing that you get as a mid-year man. You you get to learn the playbook by doing. You know, whereas Alex, he kind of had to learn it, you know, by the lessons that, you know, we zoom in through. You know, so uh, that's the difference between the two. But nevertheless, both of them have come in. And I've heard rave reviews from those guys in the weight room, especially early on, about uh, about both of them and, and, and their work ethic and their maturity. Great stuff. Well, I don't want to forget the walk-ons, Coach, because uh, at one point Trent Hickson was a walk-on who made his way into the starting lineup for you. You've had a couple of transfers from some four-year schools that have been joining your room. Who who of the walk-on group that grabs your eye and that we maybe want to keep an eye on here for the 2020 season? You know, well, uh, are you including Trent in that in that walk-on group, or I mean, well, Trent, the scholarship guy. He was a he was a pass walk-on, so I don't want to just skip over the walk-ons because heck, sometimes those guys make their way up the depth chart and can contribute for you. <laughs> well, you know, certainly Trent, without a doubt, you know, is going to be a guy that we're depending on uh, to for our success this year, without a doubt. Um, uh, don't sleep on Nuri. Yeah, um, Nuri was a guy that. Uh, just transferred recently from Colorado State. And he's been with us, you know, obviously for this past semester. And um, it's, a, it's a tough deal with, you know, with the co- with the coronavirus going around, but we only got two practices to experience, you know, the offense, you know. So um, I think he's going to have to make up some ground. Um, but he was a guy that, that started as a true freshman for Colorado State last year. You know, so um, he has some ball under his belt. He has some playing experience under his belt. And um, he has some, you know, he had, he had a little bit of fire to him as well. So I'm excited about Nuri. Um, but, you know, really other than that, you know, um, that kind of rounds up the wall for my yeah. well, potentially compete. You, you have so much more competition. I think that's fair to say than when you walked in the door a couple of years ago where if somebody got hurt on a game day, you weren't sure where you were going to go. I think you maybe have gotten past those days, and that has to excite you once you can get out on the practice field and start watching these guys compete against one another. Yeah, and, and that's what I alluded to earlier. Just the competition, the sheer competition – it you know it's a good problem to have. It is a problem. It's still a good problem to have because now you're trying to fit, you're trying to figure out, you know, the depth chart on a daily basis. You know, uh, because you're trying to get everybody in and everybody a fair chance to compete, whatever for whatever role you know you see them in. And um, not only that, but then just the communication of it. You know, like, hey, man, I'm sorry, you're going to have to play third string today, even though you were a first stringer 
two days ago, you know, um, for the sake of giving this guy an opportunity today. And one of the things that I tell the guys now is that you, you have to make every single rep count. You have to. We, we have a reduced amount of rep. Spring ball was swiped away. It was taken away from us. Fall camp is going to be reduced. We're not. We're just. We're just not going to get all the opportunities to hash out what our depth chart is going to really look like. So the you know we kind of know what guys can do. Some of the guys that are seasoned. Some of the guys that have a lot of experience. But some of those guys that are competing, you know, it, it's a play-by-play basis. You know, if you screw up on a snap count. If you screw up on an assignment, you know, certainly those things are going to be looked at with a little bit more emphasis um, now, unfortunately. But that's kind of that's kind of what we're in right now, you know. So, well, Coach, we certainly good problem to have. Yo, it's absolutely a great problem to have, and it's a sign of progress within the program. And you've done a marvelous job at that position the last couple of years. And we always appreciate your insight and your time. Keep these guys healthy once you get them out of the practice field. Let's get this. Hopefully, we get this season underway. Yes, sir. I would love to hear your voice announcing <laughs> our games this year, man. Lord knows <laughs> that that that's going to be a sign of great times. <laughs> Think them up. We count them down. It's Top 10 Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. Well, we always kind of try to find a topic that fits the times, and Austin had this in the ticker that the Toronto Blue Jays are having to find a new place to play because the country of Canada won't allow visitors to come in without quarantining because of the virus. So the Jays have to go somewhere else. Looks like it's going to be PNC Park in Pittsburgh, but Josh just gave you a thought about if you could start a franchise right now, what ballpark would you pick? That's kind of a cool little deal. Yeah. I, 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 there, it's a kind of different than asking just what's your favorite ballpark. Um, it's kind of the same, but it, it goes to the point of if you're homeless as a, as a franchise, where do you go? Where do you, where do you want to play your games at? So yeah, we talked about that and I, I threw out the idea of, of including old stadiums that aren't really, that aren't around anymore. Um, but we decided to go with only current stadiums. So all the stadiums that we have in our top 10 are ones that are currently being used by other major league baseball teams with within this you can still get a feel to, to somebody like the older ones because you know if, if you don't you may want to put the fenways and the wrigley's and the dodger stadiums in this or you don't it'll be interesting to see how right. we divvy that up here with this thing and so josh you it's your topic you get to lead us <laughs> off all right sounds good my number 10 i do go to a retro feeling ballpark in camden yard Camden Yards, the, where the Orioles play in Baltimore, and this was kind of the first of its kind of ballparks. You know, through the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of cookie-cutter ballparks, ones that looked exactly the same, you know, Riverfront Stadium and, and all those ballparks like that in St. Louis and Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. But then Camden Yards was the first of its kind where they they went for more of that retro feel that had some characters, some, you know, some originality to it. And 
that was I, I remember growing up and there weren't very many ballparks like it in Major League Baseball and so that was kind of the first one of my first favorite ballparks now it's unfortunately it's starting to get a little bit old which is weird to say it was built in the 90s but um, it, it's not really unique anymore but I still want to give it kind of a tip of the cap on my top 10 it's a it's a beautiful ballpark and I think that any club would be happy to play there at Camden Yards very good Austin how about you for number 10 I'll stick in the American League, uh, a little more recent than that one. I've got Progressive Field here at number 10, and I'll get the big problem Ooh. out of the way first. It's in Cleveland. You know, my team <laughs> won't be able to win anything. So, you know, it has that working against it, but it looks like a real nice park, great views, good enough scene around it. It's Midwestern. I, I'd like to have a Midwestern kind of feel to my team. So despite it being in Cleveland, I, I do think Progressive Field would be a good spot for my 10th franchise, I would start at least. I have not been to a game there. I've walked around the park, and it's right next to uh, it was Quicken Loans Arena. I don't know if it still is or not where the Cavs play, so they're right there together, uh, but I haven't been to a game there. Uh, I'm also in the American League. I'm going to one of those new fab ones with the retractable roof. I'm going Minute Maid Park in Houston, and I've actually done games from there. The Huskers played down there. It was built in 2000. I love the fact that it's got that retractable roof. I love the train aspect of it. I wish they hadn't taken the little inclined hill out in center field. That was a cool thing. I wish they hadn't got rid of that, but they must have got a bunch of complaints from the players, so they did that. But Minute Maid Park is my number 10. Yeah, 100% with you on the hill there for the Astros at Minute Maid. That I have been to a game there as well, and it's, it's great. Um, my number 9 is another retractable roof park, and it's T-Mobile Park, formerly known as Safeco Field in Seattle. It's where the Mariners play. And as an aside, Greg, you joked earlier, we're going to have to we needed to dust up on some of the names of these parks because they have <laughs> all these different sponsors that we're not used to. I had no idea that it was called T-Mobile Park now, but uh, it, it, again, it kind of set a wave. It was one of the first parks in Major League Baseball with a retractable roof, and I remember when it first opened, watching a game there and thinking it looked like a, a you know, a a ballpark from another planet like it was just sparkling and it looked like a you know a ufo or something a spaceship from some other planet but yeah i have the uh, mariners ballpark safe go field is what i'm going to call it at number nine i'll jump from the the west coast to the east coast for my at number nine and a national league entry i've got city field here i really prefer city field to new yankee having been to both of them a couple times the brick exterior of city field is really sharp looking the concourses are nice good views everywhere of course the little home run apple comes with it and again another thing where there's enough around it in queens close enough to the park i just like the feel of city fields it's my number nine very good all right i'm going to one of the newer ballparks sun trust park the new home of the braves it's not in downtown atlanta it's out kind of in a suburb which certainly caused some heartburn in that city that they didn't keep it near like the metro line for for folks to get easy access in and out of the ballpark but it's beautiful um and they have the freeze i mean anything you got a, you got a gimmick like the freeze you got me uh keep the freeze and i'd move my franchise there so sun trust park for the braves is my number nine that one was on my honorable mentions, but the only reason it was knocked off is, is I mean, not the only reason, but one of the reasons was what you said, that it's not 
in the downtown area yep. and it, it just doesn't quite have that same feel to me so i i don't quite have it in my top 10 but one that i do is at number eight and that's petco park home of the padres another kind of retro feel it has you know the buildings built into basically the left field wall um in downtown san diego which is a really cool feature i'm not a big padres fan i don't love watching the padres play but whenever i turn on uh, you know a nine o'clock central time first pitch at the end of sports night and uh, and they're playing. I'm going to watch if it's a home game because it, I, I love watching games there. So Petco Park is my number eight. Makes you feel any better. San Diego doesn't really like watching San Diego either. Oh, burn. <laughs> oh, man. It's too bad. It's a, it's a nice ballpark and may or may not be the last time it features on this list. But another <laughs> one uh, that we already had, I've got Camden Yards. Josh had it at 10. I've got it at 8. I'd love to see my guys crush balls out onto Utah Street, the big brick warehouse in the background. Great food around it. Boog's Barbecue sounds really good. And like you said, Josh, it's not unique anymore. But what it has going for it is that it's the imitated, not the imitator. You know, places yep. modeled themselves after it, tried to go for that field. But Camden Yards did it best. Very good. I, I've been to games there, loved it. Uh, don't particularly love the area around the stadium, and so that's why I just missed my chart. My number eight, I'm going to Philadelphia, Citizens Bank Park. And, Austin, you talked about the exterior for City Field. The exterior for Citizens Bank's really cool. They even call themselves retro classic. A lot of brick on the outside of the ballpark, which I love. Uh, I love the, uh, the, the Phillies logo hanging up in right field for that ballpark. It just looks like a cool place. I want to get to a game there at some point in time, but Citizens Bank Park in Philly makes my list at number eight. All right, on to number seven, and I'm guessing you guys will have this one a little bit higher, but I have Kauffman Stadium here at number seven, and this is the first one on my list that I actually have been to in person. I've been there several times, and, man, they all the renovations that they've done over the years have made it into a really beautiful park, and, you know, I love it. Um, and any any team would be you know glad to play there I think but um, yeah I, the only think the only thing that I think uh, is ha- a downside to it is that it's pretty far away from a lot of different things it's kind of out set apart with or with Arrowhead and they're just kind of out alone by themselves but other than that it's you know there's not much that you can go wrong with Kauffman Stadium so that's my number seven and Josh for that reason I think Kauffman Stadium's got about 10 years left I think their lease is up in 2030 I think they're going to build a downtown ballpark so Hmm. that's going to be I think gone in a few years one that won't be gone in a few years but also similarly somewhat midwestern i've got Coors field here at number seven all about the scene where you get the great denver skyline's kind of tucked away in there aesthetically a very nice stadium i love the trees behind the super tall outfield fences and my team if i'm playing at Coors field is going to be built like the minneapolis mammoths just home run hitter after home run hitter after home run hitter i'm going for 60 homers a guy as a baseline is how i'm building that team and you know it's a capturable market it's probably a broncos town then nuggets but i think if my franchise were to come in and have a successful first couple seasons it could uh, turn into a baseball town again so that's why Coors Field is my number seven very good well my seven Austin was your nine that's City Field and you're right the exterior of that would remind you of one of those old New York ballparks that we grew up watching whether it be Ebbets or the Polo Grounds or one of those they did a nice job and you're right of the two new stadiums in New York I prefer it by a wide margin over Yankee Stadium. So I've got the Mets City Field at number seven. 
All right, number six up next. And if Tim Curran or Matt Coatney were doing this list with us, they would be astonished that I have Bush Stadium at number six. They would probably have it at number one. But it's a stadium that I have been to, and it's it's amazing. Like, there's really not a whole lot better as far as, as look, and it's easy to get to. There's a lot to do around it. And um, it, it, the only thing that I think that brings it down a little bit is that it's basically been the same stadium for a long time but it's it's new so they didn't really do a whole lot different you know it's the second bush or the second iteration of bush stadium so uh, that brings it down a little bit for me it doesn't have just a ton of character but man is it beautiful so i have bush at number six all right i have greg's number eight here at number six i've got citizens bank park here again the brick exterior i'm a sucker for it i love it never been there <laughs> and you know it is a little far from downtown there's not a whole lot going on and Philadelphians aren't exactly known for their tailgating, so maybe I could start to create a little bit of a tailgate scene with this franchise, but just the park itself, the big old Liberty Bell out there in right field. Oh, it just looks like an awesome park. Not quite enough for my top five because of the location, but still a really, really solid baseball field. That's really well put because I, that location was a key thing for me, and that's why SunTrust for the Braves and Citizens Bank for the Phillies didn't crack my top seven, six or seven, just because of, of that. But my number six, Josh, you had it at nine. I still thought it was called Safeco, so I'm glad you told me this. <laughs> T-Mobile, the retractable roof for the Mariners, built in 99 already. So that stadium's 21 Ooh. years old. But it, I've been to a game there. It's within walking distance of the pier where all the shopping and, and restaurant district is. It's a couple-block walk, uh, cool setting. Uh, and love the fact that it can open up when you have nice sunny days, which are few and far between in, in, in Seattle. But I've got, I've got T-Mobile at six. All right. Number five for me, I have Dodger Stadium here, home of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I think that they're, you know, it's, it, they're kind of in, in between where they're an old ballpark, but they're not quite in the Fenway or Wrigley category. But to me, what gives them a giant boost is the setting. You watch a game at Dodger Stadium in Chavez Ravine, and you get that, you know, the brilliant uh, background of the game outside of the stadium. And just the feel of that. I haven't been to a game there, but just watching on TV, man, I would just love to soak in a game there, you know, as the sun sets in Los Angeles. So I have Dodger Stadium at five. I stay in the state of California for my number five. I bashed on the Padres fans before, but I, I do like their <laughs> stadium. I would like to send my franchise there if I had the chance. Petco Park, you know, great weather, great food and beverage options in and around the stadium. It's just super charming. It's unique with the warehouse and left field. The rest of the layout is pretty cool. I have some good memories of watching the Royals in the All-Star game there. Adam Jones's catch at the wall in the World Baseball Classic the year the USA won it. So this one's a little bit personal from what I remember watching on TV. But again, great weather, great location. Petco Park's my number five. Just to update, nobody's had the Oakland Coliseum in their list yet. So I'm, I'm sure it's all <laughs> coming for everybody here soon. Or Trop. Right, Where's the number... Trop? Where's the Trop? <laughs> trop. All right, my number five was Josh's six. I've got Bush Stadium here. A big upgrade for them from the old Bush to the new Bush. This one's built for baseball. You can tell the other one was one of those multi-purpose round concrete things for both football and, and baseball. Great view of the arch in downtown St. Louis. Cool setting. Easy walk to some bars and restaurants right around there. So Bush makes it into my top five at number five. All right, number four for me, Greg, you had at number 10, Minute Maid Park. 
home of the Astros. And I, for some reason, this one has just some nostalgia for me watching games growing up there. And I thought it was the coolest ballpark ever with the retractable roof, the, you know, the grass field, the short left field wall, and then the hill and center field. And now the hill and center field is gone, but um, I still, there's a lot and the pole and center field, both are gone. So I, unfortunately that, that brings it down a little bit for me, but it, it just is for me, it's one of the, my favorite ballparks. I have been there once, too, so that helped it out. But, um, yeah, I've got Minute Maid Park up at number four. L- let me just ask you, because I know you've been to Miller Park in Milwaukee. Don't you prefer Minute Maid over Miller? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. And, and nothing against Miller Park. No, like, there, no. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's just more character and right. just a better feel for a baseball game to me in Houston. Yep, I agreed. All right, number four for me is Dodger Stadium. Josh had it at number five. I didn't realize it was tucked away in the middle of a park, Elysian Park, which kind of contributes to some of the views. There's not a whole lot going on with it. You know, it's pretty basic. You pop a baseball field down, put some stands around it, and there you're playing baseball. I love the simplicity. I love the area, and I don't even care if I'm going to have to be competing with the Lakers and the Clippers and all that. I mean, I'll, I'll make it a, a baseball town again. Thanks, Dodgers, for the stadium. Sits up on a hill. And oh, it's kind of away from downtown quite a bit. All right, my number four, Austin, you had it seven. Here's where I've got Coors Field out in Denver, built in 95 already. So that thing's 25 years old. But great district right around it. For some, There's some good steakhouses right down in there. Easy access to some tr- uh, mass transit with a little bit of a – they've got a kind of a trolley that runs right by the stadium down there. Love the setting. And I'm with Austin. I load up my lineup with big power hitters and take advantage of that uh, high altitude. But Coors Field is a, a number four for me. Okay, on to our top three. And I'm going big time homer pick here at number three with Target Field, home of the Twins. Been there multiple times, and I I love taking in games there. It's one of the, it's kind of the same thing that you know the like Austin called it a copycat of Camden Yards. They weren't the first to do it, but to me, I think that they've done it the best of the retro ballparks. Um, the limestone feel to it is you know home uh, homegrown in Minnesota, and uh, in that downtown area, there's lots to do and a lot a lot of places to go. So I I think that the Twins definitely did a good job building target field and what they did with it with the end product all right number three for me has been said twice already greg had it at six josh at nine this is where i've got t-mobile park formerly safeco field it's one i've been to a time or two i've actually been in the m's home dugout back when i was a little kid got a tour from my uncle who has connections up there super nice now you're just showing off you know gotta (laughs) gotta flex every once in a while (laughs) Um, but, yeah, it's it's a really nice place in a modern downtown kind of area. I love walking downtown Seattle. Such a fun area. Right next to the Coink Century Link Field where I saw Sounders games. Just so much to do in that area. I think it could really be a, a really vibrant scene if there was good baseball there again. My three, I line up with Josh. I've got Target Field, Minneapolis in my number three. So maybe I wasn't homering it then. It's <laughs> no. <next. laughs> no. All right. On to our, our top two, and you're going to kind of see my direction of, of ballparks that I like with my top two. I've got Wrigley Field at number two, the oldest field still being put to use, and I, I love it. I've been there a couple different times, and I would go back there as many times as I possibly can. Anytime I'm in Chicago, I'm going to look to see if I can go to a game there because it, it just screams history. So many things have happened there, and you've got the ivy in the outfield and obviously all the different things around it. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I've got Wrigley at number two. 
I'm definitely homering it with my top two. So number two for me, Josh had it number seven. I've got Kauffman Stadium here, very close to my heart. You know, people around baseball considered a top half, top third of the league stadium. You know, sharing the parking lot leaves a lot of room for tailgating, plenty of good seats. It would have been number one if they would have the downtown stadium now. I think once they get it put in around that downtown Kansas City area, it's going to be one of the best places for baseball in the country. But for now, it's just a little bit too far out, and that's why it knocks it down that half peg to my number two. Their, the renovations they did were perfect. They did yes. a great job. The money that they got in a bond issue about 10, 12 years ago, they did it right. They really did the renovations. And it, it'll be a sad day when they move, I think, because there's been so much history there. They've won a couple of World Series titles in that ballpark. But, uh, again, you get to 2030, that ballpark's going to be over 50 years old. So, right. All right, my number two, uh, I'm going to uh, Tampa. Just kidding. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> – I'm going to San Francisco, AT&T Park, home of the Giants. Love everything about this ballpark. The little Covey, McCovey Cove out there catching home run balls and right field guys and kayaks getting out there and doing that. Walking distance to a lot of places right there in San Francisco. Sits off the bay. Beautiful venue. Uh, AT&T Park in San Francisco is my number two. All right, our number one, and my number one is Fenway Park. How can you go wrong with the Green Monster? And again, like I said, with Wrigley, all the tradition and things that have gone on there, it's uh, it's a, one of the places that I haven't been, but it's definitely at the top of my list of the ballparks in Major League Baseball that I haven't been to. It's at the top of the list of ones that I want to go to. And again, like I said with a few other ones, if it's on TV, I'm going to watch a game played at, at Fenway Park because it just screams baseball. So I've got Fenway Park as my number one. All right, rounding out the list for me is a park I actually did start a franchise at, PNC Park. You had the, the Ormond Rowboats, a resounding success, 100 wins in year one. So give us another couple years there, and I think fans will really start flocking in. But, you know, the park itself with the river in the background, Roberto Clemente Bridge, beautiful sights over downtown Steel City. You get pretty good weather during baseball season. I think there's a market to be captured there again. PNC Park, it just it has it all. It's my number one. Oh. My list is full of retro classic ballparks, and that's what I'm staying with for my number one. I'm right with you. I've got PNC Park in Pittsburgh. Love the skyline off to the outfield wall. Uh, the bridge is beautiful. Uh, it just it's it was a perfect fit. Again, like the Cardinals, they certainly upgraded going from the concrete circle multi-purpose uh, football stadium to to move into this, and it's already 20 years old as well. So crazy how quickly that's gone. But PNC Park, like you, Austin, is my number one. Well, and you, PNC Park, they're, they're used to sharing a ballpark because of the, the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates shared it with the rowboats this last season in SMBL, yeah. so they know what they're doing with, with the Blue Jays. It's true. I mean, it'll be busy. Games there about every day, that ballpark. Yep, so exactly. There we go. Should we, uh, should we Twitter poll this, or is that worth it? What do you think? We can do that. I'll, we'll, we'll put something out there. All right. Keep an eye on that. Last night, we launched our preseason top 25 with USC at number 25. Who's number 24? Well, let's find out. It's the Sports Nightly preseason top 25 tonight. And off to Otis Anderson. Got a ton of moves in his bag of tricks. Anderson still going. Got a block from Davis. Anderson free on the sideline. Touchdown. What a block by Davis. 44 yards to the house for Otis Anderson. A thing of beauty there. On the ground for UCF. Number 24, the Central Florida Knights. And here to talk about UCF, Jason Beattie, who's with 24-7 Sports. Jason, appreciate you coming on. What's uh, 
What's the the mood like around Orlando about college football? Is it pessimistic? Is it where would you gauge everybody's thoughts if we're going to have this season or not? Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's a interesting take. I think um, Florida generally. I mean, you look at the government of Florida; they feel pretty positive about things. Um, you know, cases have risen in this state the last couple of weeks. Um, but I would say, generally speaking, most feel somewhat confident about having a college football season. Uh, I mean, if you were to ask any UCF fan tomorrow, I think they'd expect to be, uh, you know, watching college football this fall, especially watching UCF. Good to hear. Jason, I'm sure you're anxiously watching the ACC, too, because a couple of big matchups are with, with uh, members of that conference, correct? Yeah, so UCF is about seven weeks away from its season opener against North Carolina, and then a couple of weeks later they travel to Georgia Tech. Um, you know, those are their two Power Five games this season that they have scheduled. Um, you know, the whole the whole hype around sophomore quarterback Sam Howell going against Dylan Gabriel. It would be a great season opener. It would be you know potentially likely a top twenty five matchup. I think that's a huge game for UCF, and it would be uh, a tragic. It would be a tragic loss for the for the for the schedule if they were that game before we jump into this year's team give our audience an update on Mackenzie milton how's that young man doing yeah i mean he's been good from what we've seen on social media um you know he's out there throwing the ball we haven't seen a whole lot of running but there have been some videos from these voluntary workouts that the team has done and some of the players are doing on their own he's throwing the ball um you know the, the one big thing he has coming up later this month uh before the end of the month is a big checkup um, you know, one big final checkup that'll really determine whether he'll be, he'll be able to suit up this season or not. Um, you know, so far he's been on track to return. We talked with him uh, earlier this summer, and he said he wants to come back and he, he's planning on coming back. But um, this next big checkup with his doctors that um, really helped his leg um, will be huge on whether he can play this year or not. All right, give me the breakdown then of Dylan Gabriel. How, how did he do his first year? What What do you think his upside is? Yeah, I think a lot of people were expecting Brandon Wimbush to be the starting quarterback. He transfers in from Notre Dame, um, and then in comes Dylan Gabriel, a freshman from Hawaii. kind of felt like similar to Mackenzie Milton, a freshman from Hawaii, coming in and earning the starting role. And, um, you know, Mackenzie was even impressed with Dylan. Dylan, you know, shattered multiple freshman records. Um, He was fourth nationally in passing yards per completion. He was 13th nationally in passing efficiency. Uh, Really, really impressed. You know, at times he looked like a freshman, right, because that's what freshmen look like at times. Um, but he, he made some mistakes on the road, had a couple too many turnovers. I think he'd be the first to admit that. But, you know, he's for a freshman, he really, you know, gained his voice on the field and in the locker room and um, wants to become a true leader for this team. And I think, I think a lot of people were impressed with where he was. And, you know, he's talked over and over again, and we've heard the coaches talk and Josh Heupel talk about how much effort and how much time he puts into learning, you know, not only the playbook but the game of football at UCF. And I think – um, you know, we saw who, who, how he performed during the freshman season, and at times it was really impressive. So I think he's expected to, you know, be even better this sophomore year. Again, yeah, busy with Jason Beatty, who covers the UCF Knights for twenty four seven Sports. <clears throat> Last year's offense, top ten, pretty much in every national category. Any reason to not think they'll be that good again this year on that side of the ball? 
even if I wanted to find one, I don't really think I can. They return eight starters on offense. Obviously, we just talked about Dylan Gabriel and what he brings. Um, you know, they lost Gabriel Davis, their number one target, to the NFL draft last season. They lost Adrian Killens to the to the Eagles, who who we signed after the draft. Um, you know, those are two guys right there, the main running back and top wide receiver. They lose, but you know, returning they have guys like Otis Anderson, Greg McRae. Uh, you know, Ole Miss transfer, Trey Nixon, who was the second leading receiver last year for them. Marlon Williams, big guy, big of Harris this year. They're also going to add Jalen Robinson, who transferred from Oklahoma. I really don't see a slowdown for this offense. Um, you know, last year's offensive line at times struggled, um, but I think this year's offensive line will be even better. Um, there's not a whole lot of indicators for why this offense shouldn't slow down at all, in my opinion. All right, let's go to the other side of the ball uh, defensively. Obviously, when you play the style of offense that Coach Heupel does, you're going to put your defense out there an awful lot. How about that side of the ball? Where's, where's the optimism? Where's the concern here as we get ready to start this season in a month? Yeah, optimism is that the defensive backs, um, you know, Richie Grant returns, Aaron Robinson. This last week we've seen national watch lists be released. Both of them have been on the watch list for best defensive backs. Richie Grant, a couple defensive best players in the nation. Um, I just really think this defensive back group, Tay Gowan, Brandon Moore, Antoine Collier, really talented defensive back group. Uh, defensive line, you know, they, lo- they lose a couple guys. They lost some uh, leadership last after this past season, but some younger guys like Randy Charles, Traymond Morris Brash, who was an Under Armour, Under Armour All American coming out of high school, we should see some in, some impact from those guys. Um, but you know, defensively, I think the defensive back group is really where the stars will shine uh, with Richie Grant and Aaron Robinson. But again, similar to the offense, they return eight starters on defense. So um, you know, we always talk about how do they compete against the fast-paced offense. And you know, over the years, last couple of seasons, they've some of the players on defense have joked that, you know, when they go up against other offenses, it feels a little slower to them because they're going against UCF's fast-paced offense. But, you know, generally they have a couple gaps to fill on the defensive line, but that defensive back group is really talented. All right, we talked about North Carolina leading the season off. How big a game and how big a week will it be when Cincinnati comes up late in the season? Yeah, it's it's that's a huge game too. I mean, you look at their conference schedule. Um, you know that that that's one of their first big tests. You know, Cincinnati had their number last season. After the last couple, after the last few seasons prior, when UCF was just better a team. Um, you know, last year they traveled Cincinnati, and Cincinnati got that top twenty-five win. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Cincinnati's ranked at that at that point in the season either. Um, you know, it'd be it'd be. Obviously, coming to Orlando, UCF hasn't lost a home game in a couple of seasons now. I mean, I don't really see that changing, just the home atmosphere. But, of course, with uh, everything going on in this pandemic, it's going to be hard to see fans in the stands. But um, even if there is a capacity issue, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But that's a big game and really will determine who comes out of the East and the American. Very good. Jason, great stuff. Appreciate it. Let's hope you have some games to cover here in a few weeks. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you, guys. Just a few minutes left in this hour. We were dealing with our top 10 or top 25 countdown. UCF was our number 24. And we, uh, I think we got Josh back with us. You were rudely interrupted on your UCF comments. Your, your thoughts about the Knights. Yeah, I, there's a lot of different things that um, that I was saying there before when I got knocked off. But <laughs> mo- mostly it was just that they – they they have a lot back, a lot of talent back, and a lot of veteran guys. So I think that 
Um, the, you know, the bottom line is is that they're talented on offense, and they have a lot of guys back on offense. Dylan Gabriel is really good. But then defensively, I think a lot of times it gets overlooked with schools like that that have so much talent on offense. That defensive backfield is is really, really good. They're stacked with four seniors back. So that's pretty pretty amazing so um I, yeah overall i think that you you said it right when you threw it to me that they were probably we probably had them a little bit low they don't know what their schedule is going to look like if those acc games with north carolina and georgia tech are still going to be there but um overall i think that they have a, a really good team and i we probably could have bumped them up a few spots you're right yeah, we'll see. I mean, again, will they play 12? Will the ACC try to can keep those games alive? Here's, the, And I had a conversation about this today because, you know, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have canceled their non-conference games. The ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 have not. There's a reason. The SEC and the ACC have some big-time crossover games that they don't want to lose. For instance, Florida-Florida State, South Carolina-Clemson. Georgia, Georgia Tech. Those are prime games that are big rivalry games between those two conferences that they don't want to just eliminate. Really, Nebraska is not in that batch. There's really nobody that Nebraska, you would say. Now, Iowa kind of is with Iowa, Iowa State, but I, I don't know how big that is to Iowa. I think it's bigger to Iowa State than Iowa. I might be wrong. I'm not from Iowa, but yeah. that's what I would think. That's why I think those two conferences, Josh, are trying to hang on to some non-conference matchups because of those big rivalry games that are that are cross cross conferences. Yeah, you're right. There's so there's so many more examples of that. You know, especially like you look at the. ACC with the SEC they're just there are so many of them like you, you go down the list and there, there's a ton of them whereas like you said you look at what there is in the Big Ten and, and and there's just really not and same thing with the Pac-12 and I think that's probably a big reason why both of those conferences were pretty quick to go to conference yeah. only whereas the SEC and ACC you know they, they wanted to hesitate they're like oh hold on a second we're not just going to join everybody else and do that because we have you know some teams have multiple non-conference games that they like to play um and and have big time rivalries and tradition around those games that they don't want to just give those up on a whim so yeah that it'll be interesting to see what those two conferences end up doing but then also how that impacts what you know smaller conferences like the American Athletic Conference which UCF is in what they do with that too there there's just so many things that have to be worked out but there's obviously people that are, are working on all those things. Iowa, Iowa State's the only one I could really think of in the Big Ten. Now, Notre Dame against Wisconsin, now it would have been cool, but they don't play every year. That's not a yearly no. battle game for them. So I really, the Cyhawk game is the only one I can think of involving a Big Ten team. You're like, wow, that's just a, a big loss, traditional loss. Speaking of Notre Dame, ESPN.com has just put a story up uh, with their athletic director, Jack Swarbrick. Notre Dame's in a pickle here a little bit. This is where being an independent may, may hurt them a little bit because they're not a part of a conference. They do have an arrangement to play six opponents from the ACC, which the ACC is saying we're going to honor those. We're going to keep those things. But Jack Swarbrick, uh, Swarbrick said today that he would like to delay the start of the college football season for a few weeks, saying I think we would then have a better feel for what's going on on our campuses after a few weeks of the students being back on campus. And then he said – 
I don't anticipate a 12-game schedule. I think somewhere between 8 and 10 works. Well, yeah, Notre Dame's they're, they're having a hard time finding games now because they lose Stanford, they lose USC because the Pac-12 is not playing, and they lose the Wisconsin game. So there's three off their schedule already that they don't have. All they know they have is that the ACC says, we're going to protect you. So these comments from Schwarberg really don't surprise me. Because I, I think he knows he can't get to 12. He, he can't get it up that high because of all the games he's lost. Right. And, and Notre Dame, like that, that's one team that I've been kind of questioning in the midst of all this, when, especially when the Big Ten and Pac-12 made their decisions. I, I started to wonder what they're going to do. And you start to think, man, I'm really glad. That's one instance where you're glad that the Huskers are in a conference and, and are kind of protected in a way. But whereas Notre Dame, most of the time, they're probably more than happy that they aren't a part of the conference. They can kind of just do their own thing. But it might come back to bite them here because, like you said, if, if, they, if nobody's going to play them, then they might have to throw together a schedule at the last minute and basically just take whoever they can get. And I, it'll be interesting to see if, you know, if, if other conferences end up playing close to a full schedule, like 10 games or even 12 games possibly – does Notre Dame then go and like, what if they only play six or seven games? That's all that they can put on their schedule. I just, uh, any kind of a postseason is going to be so interesting to see and how that plays out. I, I have no idea what's going to happen, but it, it's definitely going to be interesting. Josh, I don't know if Notre Dame has a seat at the table right now. I mean, the conference commissioners are talking, but because they're not in a league, I don't know that the conference commissioners are looping in Notre Dame's AD into their conference calls. My guess is they're not. They're not all that worried about Notre Dame. They're like, well, this is what you get, Notre Dame, for not joining one of us. You don't get a seat at the table right now. And it's maybe just too bad. I know Ben has no pity for Notre Dame at all. He, he's not like that at all. Nope. Uh, I, I do want to bring up something that Austin's had it in the ticker tonight. Uh, our, our, our thoughts, our hearts, our prayers go out to the Hoffman family. And if you didn't hear or missed our ticker from earlier tonight, Andy Hoffman, the dad of Jack Hoffman, the young man who's had uh, brain cancer from a very young age, who ran that touchdown back in that Nebraska spring game several years ago. Andy Hoffman now has a massive brain tumor that he's dealing with. He was out for a jog over the weekend, passed out, went to the hospital. They did a CAT scan and found a tumor in his brain. He's now currently at the Mayo Clinic up in, in Minnesota trying to get treatment for that. I know that, that there's an old saying that, that God only gives you so much, only, only gives you what you can handle. Well, my goodness, the Hoffman family's had an awful lot to deal with in the last 10 years or so. So, Josh, it just broke my heart when I heard that story when Andy posted that message earlier today. Uh, he's just been a great Husker supporter, and he certainly got Husker Nation behind his son and a lot of great causes of trying to find a cure for pediatric brain cancer. Now he himself looks like he's fighting for his life. Yeah, it's, it, it's so hard to hear. It's tough news, and your heart goes out to him and his family, but... You know, you, you go back to what that family has gone through and how how much they've done for so many people and what the Team Jack Foundation has done. And a lot of it, a lot of that legwork has done has been done by Andy Hoffman. And, um, yeah, it, it's such a an amazing legacy that has already been put in. And you just you, you wish for the best for him and his family after, you know, obviously what they've gone through in so many different ways already. Mm-hmm. 
just heartbreaking. Again, thoughts and prayers with the Hoffman family. Callers and guests into our show. That'll up on our Sports Nightly Hotline. Brought to you by the Woodhouse Auto family. Bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. And this is another hour of Sports Nightly. Don't go away. Another one to go.